Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray that you'll set aside all our um, concerns and worries and everything that is in our hearts that, that, that's bothering us and help us to listen to your voice through the scripture. And we pray that you'll, you'll speak the truth to us and through your Holy Spirit that we'll be able to listen and obey your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our passage starts with this. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are, who are Gentiles by birth called circumc- circumcised by the, those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Well, Jews and Gentiles hated one another. I don't think hate is, a, is an exaggeration of how people felt. Um, there was the history of the Hellenization of Israel. So when Greeks took over the land of Israel, they forced Jews, the Jews to accept the customs of, 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 Greek, uh, of, of Greece. It wasn't that long ago that the, the Antiochus Epiphany IV um, took a pig and sacrificed it on the altar, on the temple. Um, and they made Sabbath-keeping, circumcision, all those things, uh, a, a punishable offense. The division between the Jews and the Gentiles wasn't just a matter of custom, but it has physical representation as well. And if you can remember, the, the, the Greeks and the Romans enjoyed these Olympic games and public baths. So the fact that people were circumcised actually became very obvious to people. In turn, some Jews said that the Gentiles were created to be, uh, to be uh, 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 fuel for fires of hell. They said that God loves only Israel out of all the nations that he has made. And if a Jewish boy married a Gentile, or vice versa, they set a funeral for them. They were counted as dead. But it was also symbolized in the architecture of the temple. The Gentiles were allowed in the outward courts of the temple, but they were not allowed into the temple itself. In fact, there was this big wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Gentiles were not allowed into the temple at all. In 1987, I mean, 1871 and 1935, two limestone slabs were found. Um, it didn't say that the trespassers were going to be prosecuted. It actually said that the trespassers are going to be executed. This is the exact wording. No foreigner may enter the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for the ensuing death. The Jewish, Jewish people wanted the Gentiles out of the temple courts. And you can imagine why this might have been the case. As Paul writes in verse 12, Gentiles weren't part of the chosen people. They were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and the covenant made to Abraham and renewed again and again throughout the history. Them knowing one true God, they looked down upon idol worshippers. People who bowed to the image made in stones and in wood. They also had the law as well, which was the evidence that they were the chosen people. Not only that, but they could make themselves ceremonially clean. They could make themselves morally superior to others by observing the law. 
Paul confirms these thoughts actually in verse 12. Look at the things that the Gentiles are excluded from, the Gentiles lacked. Remember that at the time they were separated from Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God. Gentiles were physically and spiritually separated from the covenant of the promise without hope of the true uh, without hope of the resurrection, without, uh, without God, uh, not that they didn't have, any, they didn't worship God, but they were excluded from the fellowship, from the living, in, with the living, living and one true God. They also didn't have Christ, which uh, Messiah is the is the Hebrew word for the Greek word for Christ. They didn't have Christ, the Messiah, the Savior that was promised to the world. And if you remember. The passages from the last couple of weeks, we remember how, how tragic that thought is. The fact that people are separated from Christ. In chapter 1, Paul reminded us that every spiritual blessings were given to Christ, people in Christ. And in chapter 2, he explained how God has raised us um, and seated us on high with Christ. Gentiles are cut off from God. And that's a huge problem by itself. But that's not the only problem. Jews and Gentile division are the only way that we divide the world today, isn't it? We divide ourselves along nationalities, gender, ethnicities, social class, educational level, wealth, appearance, color of our skin. Not just color of our skin, but the shades of the same color. That seems ridiculous to me, but shades of the same color. The Jews separated themselves from, uh, from others through the law. That gave them a sense of superiority and self-righteousness. They judged others because they were ceremonially clean and morally superior. The law, the thing which was good in and of itself, became the reason for contempt and hostility towards others. I don't think that's all that different, actually, in the way that we divide ourselves. Some people feel superior, but also maybe inferior because they are born in a particular nation, born in American, Chinese, British or whatever. And there seems to be mild contempt, it seems to me, um, towards uh, uh, mainland Chinese. I don't really understand this. It seems like a a strange form of (laughs) self-hatred. Almost every line by which we divide ourselves, level of education, social class, wealth, appearance, or whatever, they become the basis people feel superior or inferior towards one another. It then quickly degenerates into being a source of hostility. And the history has proven this thing is not a small matter. People have gone to war because of these divisions. No hope, no God for Gentiles. And Paul says in verse 12, um, no wonder we're so prone towards division, towards hostility. We even use good things like the law to divide ourselves. Not just law, law, education level, wealth or whatever. We bring division, hostility to ourselves. No hope, no God. So division ensues. But remember, in verse 11, that is what we were. That is what we were. Remember that formerly, he says, verse 12, remember that at that time, 
This is what we were, he says in verse 11 and 12. But as with, with last week, there is this great but that happens in this passage as well. In verse 13, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ Jesus. Paul talked a lot about what Christ did for each one of us as individuals last week. But here, this week is you plural. He wants to talk not only about what God did for us as individuals, but what God did for us, the humankind in Christ. You were once far away, and you have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That spatial language was, an unco- was a common language in the Old Testament. God and Israel were known to be near one another. So Moses in Deuteronomy 4, 7 says, What a great nation is there that, God has, uh, that has a God so near, so near to it as the Lord our God is with us. Psalm 148 talks about how people of Israel are near to him, to the humankind. The humankind is brought near to God through Christ, but through the blood of Christ, the extraordinary thing is that we're brought near to one another. And this is the focus of this text today, how God has brought all of us together in Christ. So he continues in verse 14, that Jesus is our peace. He's our peace because he has made two one. Because he has destroyed the barrier, dividing wall of hostility. That wall of hostility, I'm sure, is a reference back to the temple wall itself that forbade the Gentiles coming in from worshiping God together. It's as if Christ took the sledgehammer and tore down that wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews, as they can now worship together as one human race. Christ did it, did it through the hammer of the cross. So glance to verse 15. He did this by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. He did this by abolishing this in his flesh. Surely reference to the cross. And I reflected on this. What does it mean for Jesus to abolish this in his flesh? Abolishing the law and its commandments and regulations. I think what it means is that it seems to me that this this sort of smugness, the self-righteousness, the sense of superiority that comes in observing the law on the cross He's destroyed it. Because on the cross, Jesus proclaims to the world that no one can keep the law by himself. That God in Christ has to keep it for us. On the cross, we realize that both giving of the law and keeping it is grace. It's done through the grace. It's God's expression of grace rather than the basis for boasting. He proclaims to the world by dying on the cross that each one of us comes as a sinner before God. That we cannot use our, this ceremonial cleanliness or even moral righteousness as the basis for division, hostility, and contempt. The ground 
before the crucifixion, before the cross, is completely leveled. There he crucifies the self-righteousness, self-righteous division, and gave both the Jews and the Gentiles humility before the cross, the realization that all have fallen short of the glory of God, that all come to God through grace. And on top of that, I think the cross abolishes the law and the division that comes from observing it because the cross divides this ethnic division, doesn't it? On the cross, we see God opening his arms, dying not for me as an individual, not for a particular nation in the world, but for the entire human race. As we look to God on the cross, as we're gathering together to look upon God dying for us on the cross, we can actually look sideways as well and see that we gather as a forgiven people, people of God as long-lost sisters and brothers in Christ with common ancestry, our Maker and our Redeemer, God. And in verse 15, Paul says, this was the purpose in Christ. This is the purpose from the very beginning uh, per, to create in himself one man out of the two. The purpose was to fulfill God's vision. That, that vision stretches back to, to, to Genesis chapter 3 from fall of humanity. The unity of human race was lost in the fall. That's when we start striving against one another. And God had this plan to bring all of human race together to him from the very beginning. God called Abraham to be a blessing for the entire world, not just for himself. When he called Abraham, the very first promise made to Abraham is that he will be a blessing for all people of the earth. All people of the earth will be blessed through you, he said in Genesis chapter 12, 3. The prophets anticipate Uh, that all of the world, all the Gentiles, will stream to Israel, to Jerusalem. The Psalms assume that all nations, every nation, will will worship Yahweh God. In a similar vein, the law was not given just for the benefit of Israel. The law was given so that Israel would keep the law and become a light to the whole world. The purpose of everything that God did in the Old Testament was bring everyone to himself. To reconcile and unite everyone to God and therefore towards each other. The vision of the law had always been global. And what Israel had failed to do, Christ did. Christ came to fulfill. The unity purpose from the very beginning comes into existence and grows only by our personal union with Christ. So world peace is this favorite topic of all the politicians and for some reason all the beauty pageants. (laughs) The United Nations Charter Charter says that the purpose of its its existence is to, to maintain international peace and security. If you read the, the preamble, I mean, the, it talks of the four purposes. It keeps on and on about uh, peace, about, about keeping peace. But we know that they're not that effective. 
It's a good thing that we seek peace, because that is God's goal as well. But we know that this peace can only be found in Christ. Christ has made peace between God and people, but also between people amongst ourselves. Verse 17, he not only established peace, but he preached peace to the world, to put those who were far away and those now who are near. But that perfect peace, at best, by ourselves can only be established for maybe 10, 20, 30 years by UN or by our efforts. But that shalom peace, I should say, that, that peace that UN talks about is really the absence of war, absence of conflict. But the peace that the Bible talks about, that shalom, is a positive concept. It's not a negative concept. It's, 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 it's this place where harmony exists between God and between ourselves, between us and the world as well. That can only be, in, uh, that, uh, that can only be established under the lordship of Christ. We must try to bring it and live it here in this world, but with also with the knowledge that that fullness of peace will not arrive until Jesus comes back. As a church, as a community that lives with the hope of the future, of the end time, and through the power of the end time, through the Holy Spirit, we should be the showcase of that peace here as well between ourselves Jesus, by dying on the cross, he has made us one human race. But finally, if that's the case, we must remember not only what Christ, what we were in the past, not only what Christ did, but now who we are in the present. Remember who we are in our lives. And Paul devotes um, his last section of of chapter 2 on this, verses 19 through 22, to this end. Here, Paul uses, I think, three analogies, each one going, taking us a bit deeper and deeper as we go. So, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. First, we're fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. We're no longer what we used to be, strangers and sojourners. Visitors without legal rights. On the contrary, our status has dramatically changed. Now we're citizens. We belong to the kingdom of God. This doesn't mean that you stop being New Zealanders and Filipinos or Americans or Chinese or whatever. It it doesn't mean that we stop being these things, but it does mean that our first and primary identity becomes Christians. Citizens to the kingdom of God. Our first allegiance isn't to to, uh, Hong Kong or to our nations, but our first allegiance becomes to our king, to the values of this kingdom. We are people who feel most at home with the values of the kingdom of God and with those who share its goals. They have, um, I think this is why the Bible tells us not to marry non-Christians, because we feel uneasy towards people in in our most intimate 
uh, fellowship, we feel uneasy with the people who, um, in our marriage, if they don't share the same passport. They're not fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. This kingdom is very different from the rest of the world, isn't it? So ask yourselves, how, how comfortable do we feel in the world? How comfortable do we feel with those who are not actually yet citizens in the kingdom of God? I'm not saying that we should all withdraw ourselves from the world and live amongst ourselves. No, the Bible's vision is not that for sure. But I am saying that we ought to live as salt in the world, as people who are set apart, as people who are different, because the world needs our saltiness. We are fellow citizens with the holy people of God. But then he takes this analogy a bit further, and well, he gives us a different analogy, something even more extraordinary. And then he goes on to say, We are members of God's household. Sharing citizenship in the kingdom is one thing. It's a great basis of commonality. Koreans are a very distinct group of people. Um, and I had to tell people again and again in in, in U.S. that we're different from the Chinese. <laughs> we're different people. We, we, we share some commonalities um, there. Yes, that's true. But being members of the household, same household, points to a deeper unity, doesn't it? We have become a family of God. When you meet my parents and my sister, you will know that there is a deep resemblance in all of us. Um, families have resemblance. The uni- unity there is even deeper. We call each other brothers and sisters. And that's not just a cr- strange Christian custom. It's an expression of the deepest bond we share with one another. No matter our race, no matter our social standing, no matter our educational levels, color of our skin, personality, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm fond of quoting my, uh, one of my professors who said um, that the water is thicker than the blood. Water is thicker than the blood. The baptismal water that brings us together as a family of Christ and baptism is a symbol of you entering into the church community as a family of Christ, that is more substantial, more thick, more lasting than the bond that we share even with our blood relatives. Even death will not separate us. I don't know if you like the people sitting next to you or not. Even death will not separate you. We are bound as a family together in Christ. We're members of God's household together. And this family shares a common ancestry because it takes after the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as our cornerstone, verse 20. This family is a foundation is not actually the apostles and the prophets, but their teaching, what they taught. Their teaching pointed to the chief cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. And cornerstone is, first of all, foundational stone, isn't it? According to Wikipedia, and I really hope this is right, <laughs> a important, uh, cornerstone is important since all other stones will be set in reference to that stone, thus determining the position of every other stone in the structure. The early church apostles 
pointed to Christ. Every thought, uh, the, the prophets of the Old Testament, they pointed to Christ. The prophets of the New Testament pointed to, uh, to, uh, to Christ. Every thought and action that we do as individuals, but more importantly, as a church together, in this household, must be determined by our relationship with Christ, our cornerstone. We must take after Jesus in all that we do, because Christ has made us family. We're built upon this foundation. So Christ has made us family. Um, but there's a final and third metaphor here as well. So look to verse 21. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. For about a thousand years, the temple was the focal point of the Jewish identity. But remember, temple was, exclu- temple was exclusively for the Jews. Gentiles were forbidden to enter it. But now Paul says, not only the Gentiles are admitted to the temple, but they are themselves building blocks of the temple of God. The Trinitarian God lives in the church. Did you catch all three of the Godhead in there? God's people in verse 22. In Jesus we're being built together to become a dwelling in which God, God the Father, lives by the Holy Spirit. Verse 22. Being temple means that we as individuals and as a church becomes the focal point of God's presence in the world. Jewish people believe that they are God's chosen people because the temple remained as a physical sign, physical sign of God's presence with them. The whole world was supposed to know that God was in Israel because the temple was there, because God existed in the temple. Now we as the church have become the temple. We as the church have become the sign of God's presence in this world. The focal point of God's work, who God is in the world. Now that the people, uh, the whole world will know that there is a living God in the world by the mere presence, by the mere fact that we come together as a church together because of the kind of community that we are as the church the people will know in the world that God is in the world we have become signs of God's presence what this says is that this community of God must think differently from the world treat one another in a way different from the rest of the world treats one another. It must act differently toward the world than the world acts towards itself. The kind of community that Shatin Church is should be enough. Should be enough to convince people out in the world that God exists. That God is alive. We have become God's temple. So what kind of community are we? 
Are, are we remembering who we were? Are we remembering what Christ has done? Are we remembering who we are now in the light of Christ's action? In the Disney movie Lion King, Simba um, goes on a self-imposed exile. Do you remember this movie? Yeah, everybody here. Yeah. Um, Simba goes on a self-exile, uh, 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 um, uh, self-imposed exile. After his father Mufasa, Mufasa dies, he thinks that it's his fault. He goes. He, uh, um, he almost dies there, but is I think rescued by Simon and Timba. Yeah. Um, but there, as out, he's out there in the jungle all by himself, he stops acting like a lion. He eats grubs and acts like Simone and Timba. Much less, he doesn't act like the, the king that he is. But in one evening, he stares at the reflection of himself in the pond. And, 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 the, and the gray clouds above the sky sort of coalesce to form image of his father, Mufasa. And I don't know if you remember the scene. I, I was really touched by the scene. I don't know why. But Mufasa uh, speaks with the voice of Earl, jo- uh, Earl Jones, I think. He's got this deep, resonating voice, and he says something like, Remember who you are. Remember who you are. If we remember who we were, if we remember what Christ has done, and if we remember who we are now, we will be an extraordinary community. In chapter 1, Paul told us that we are a chosen community, given every blessings, every blessings in the spiritual realm in Christ. He then prayed for, for the church, so that the church would know the hope to which we have been called, um, to know Jesus and to know his mighty power working within us, He then told us in chapter 2 that we are a saved community. That we're no longer bound to sin, to our fallen nature, to the evil one. We're a people who have been freed, graced, and empowered to live, to do the works that God has called us to do. To the good works that God has called us to do. And today he reminds us that we're a community with no divisions. No sense of superiority or inferiority. People who share the same passport in the kingdom of God. More than that, that we're same members of the same community, same household. Same building blocks in the temple of God together. A community that testifies to God's presence in the world. To his justice, holiness and grace. His extraordinary love. Remember who we are. God has blessed us in the past 20 years. And this is God's church. God will bless us again in the future. But remember who we were. Remember what Christ has done. Remember who we are now. We're fellow citizens. We're forgiven community. We should be a forgiving community as a result. We're a, love, we're a loved community. We should be a loving community as a result. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus is our cornerstone, which means we're a, a community that learns from the Bible, who grows and does everything in, in, in our relationship 
with Jesus in mind? Is that kind of community that we are? When people see Shatin Church, will people know that God is alive in the world just by the community that we are? In the early 90s, genocide in Burundi was raging. Hutus were being killed by the uh, Tutsis. Tutsis were therefore fleeing for their lives. The chancellor of uh, Bujumbra University made this extraordinary remark, despite the fact that he's not a Christian. He says this. He said this. Our culture is disintegrating. There are three groups of people on this campus. Hutus, Tutsis, and Christians. Christians are the only ones who are able to look beyond our differences and make a difference. Meanwhile, in Rwanda, um, same things were happening. All the leaders of the graduates of the National Christian Student Movement were killed during that time. Lindsey Brown, who was the, 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 head, the general secretary of IFES, the student movement, he visited a year after and he asked, why were the Christians specifically targeted for this? It transpired that a week before the genocide broke out, as these things are happening, brewing in the air, Hutus and Tutsi Christians met publicly on campus together, holding hands and singing the song together, We are one in Christ, one in the Spirit. And for that, they were killed. Remember who we are. He ends, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. In him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And let that be true of this church. Amen.